Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Pretty good. It's a beautiful day. That's right. Spring has arrived. More or less. I got the car washed. Yeah. Everything's coming up, Sarah. (laughs) That's good. How are you? I'm okay. Um, I'm a little bit tired and I have a little bit of a headache, but we made some chicken something dumplings out of the D&D cookbook last night, uh, a halfling recipe, and they were very nice and filling. And we had leftovers for lunch today, which were again, very nice. And very filling. And filling. Yeah. Um, So my belly's full and, you know, that's always nice. Full belly, full hearts. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we've got a pretty significant little movie. We've got, for one thing, it's an A picture from a studio, which... That's new. I don't remember the last time we had <laughs> an A picture from a real studio. I'm sure we had one like within like the last month sometime. Mm. For another, this movie kind of begins like a subgenre of horror film uh, that continues to this day, which is the creepy evil child Mm-hmm. subgenre uh because today we are watching the bad seed from 1956 Ooh. and this movie is based on a broadway stage play of the same title which was based on a novel of the same title it's uh, a good title <laughs> don't change what's not broken sure why don't we start today's episode by talking about the novel from sure. 1954? That is correct. The novel The Bad Seed, as you said, was published in 1954 and was written by a William March. Wait, was was written by a William March or just a man named William March? A man named William March. Got it. Rather, he wasn't officially named that. Okay. That's his, like author's name. His nom de plume. Yes. He was born William Edward Campbell. Oh, okay. Um, So he was born in 1893 and was the eldest of 11 children. Yeah, that's how that generation rolled. He was born into this working class family, although his father's enjoyment of poetry was expressed with drunken renditions of Edgar Allan Poe's poetry at the dinner table. Great. Um, His mother, uh, Susan March, uh, taught the children to read and write. And uh, with her maiden name being March, that's where he got uh, his Uh, writer's nom de plume. Got it, got it, got it. While William showed a lot of interest and talent in writing from a young age, he never was particularly encouraged in it because he's the eldest and he needs to go out and get a job. Sure. So he went out and got a job at the local lumber mill. And eventually, he would start working at a local law office in Alabama. At 19, he took a high school course at a nearby university and eventually was able to enroll in the University of Alabama to study law. Unfortunately, he had to drop out due to being unable to pay the tuition. Mm. 
So at 23 years old, he moved to New York City, began working at a law firm there, and got really into the theater scene there. Oh, sure. So that's 1916. Oof, okay, yep. Yep, so the next year, 1917, uh, the U.S. entered World War I. William joined the U.S. Marines and earned the rank of sergeant. As a U.S. Marine, he and his company participated in every major engagement where the U.S. troops were involved, including the assault on the Blancmont Ridge, where Germany was pushed out of the Champagne region in France. During that engagement, William March left where his shelter was and went to go to the first aid tent um, to try to rescue some of the wounded soldiers there um, because the German enemy was coming within 300 meters. But the German army got too close, so he engaged the enemy and was able to push off the enemy's soldiers um, despite being wounded twice. For those actions, William March was awarded the French Croix de Guerre, the U.S. Army's Distinguished Service Cross for Valor, and the Navy Cross. When 1919 came around, he went back to civilian life, uh, back to Alabama, but with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Sure. As did many soldiers from World War I. Uh, he would occasionally have anxiety attacks so severe that his eyes and throat would become paralyzed. So back in Alabama, he began to work at the Waterman Steamship Corporation, and he rose in the ranks through the 1920s, at the same time reading a lot about psychology, like works from Alfred Adler, Freud, Jung, and started to take creative writing courses at Columbia University. So with his job at the Steamship Corporation, he was able to go from Alabama to New York City to Germany. He was able to travel all over. And so while in New York City is where he was able to go to Columbia University and is where he published his first short story in 1929 titled The Holly Wreath. His next piece of work would be his very first novel titled Company K in 1933, and it's been compared to the novel All's Quiet on the Western Front. Um, so it's kind of considered a big deal, even though it's lesser known. Hmm. As I said, uh, his work with the Waterman Corporation meant that he got sent all over, and so he went to Germany for a while, and that is where he wrote his second novel, Come In at the Door, in 1934. Next, his company sent him to London, and this is when he began seeing psychoanalyst Edward Glover, um, who helped cure his throat paralysis. All right. And that is when he wrote his next novel, 1936's The Talons. With all of these works under his belt, William March returned to the U.S., decided to resign from the Waterman Corporation. He sold the stocks he had in the company and was able to basically live off of that money um, and write full time. So this occurred in 1938, and things are going well. You know, he has some short story collections out, another novel, and then... Between 1945 and 1947, he hit a writer's block, um, had multiple nervous breakdowns, and nothing I read explicitly said this, but I would guess that it's because of World War II. Hmm. During this time, he would go back and forth from New York to Alabama. Um, you know, his family's still based in Alabama, but he established some really good friendships in New York City, particularly New York Metropolitan art dealer Klaus Pearls. 
And with that friendship, he was able to have kind of a creative kinship, meet some other creatives. And in particular, he developed a really good um, relationship with Shame Soutine, uh, who also dealt with paranoia and schizophrenia in his work. Mm. In the context of these creative relationships, William March would publish October Island in 1952 and then The Bad Seed in 1954. However, by the 1950s, he was suffering from really ill health. Um, You know, he was in his late 50s, um, had a pretty eventful life. So he wasn't really able to travel back to New York City all that often. Um, So he's just kind of writing, but that creative vigor isn't, he he says he doesn't really have it in him. Hmm. So when he finished writing The Bad Seed, he said that he wasn't actually wholly satisfied with it. The Bad Seed was published... April 8th, 1954, just a few weeks before that, March 25th, he suffered a heart attack. Oh, no. And that unfortunately put him in the hospital. Um, He was able to read the positive reviews that his novel received, and he was discharged from the hospital um, in late April. Um, Unfortunately, uh, only a few weeks later, on May 15th, he suffered a heart attack while asleep and died at age 60. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, he had actually written something on his typewriter the night he died. But what he wrote was actually kind of poignant um, and reflective on his recent heart attack. He expressed pain, then astonishment that death was near from a conventional heart attack of all things Mm. after all that he's gone through. Thankfully, he did live long enough to see some of the reviews that came out about his novel. Uh, The Bad Seed was an instant bestseller, the New York Times Review, praised it as both, quote, an exposition of a problem and a work of art. Hmm. And in 1955, it was nominated for the National Book Award. However, it lost to William Faulkner's A Fable. So let me tell you about the plot. Of The Bad Seed. Yes. Not William Faulkner's A Fable. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, uh, of The Bad Seed. So Rhoda Penmark appears to be a normal, obedient relatively pleasant eight-year-old, but other children seem to avoid her. She's moved to a new small town, and her mom, Christine, is a stay-at-home mom, and her dad, Kenneth, travels a lot. At this new school in the small town, there's a tragedy at the school where her classmate Claude drowns, Um, and it appears accidental, except he does seem to have some weird shaped marks on his face, but it's considered a tragedy he, he drowned. Now, Rhoda's mother, Christine, learns later that Rhoda actually fought with Claude um, and kind of hid that that was the case and was kind of dodgy about what the fight was about. She begins to question Rhoda's behavior and begins to see that her daughter is actually quite cold, um, a little manipulative. And Christine starts to think back to some past events where there have been other accidental deaths or tragedies like um, a dog that they had that Rhoda really wanted and then suddenly didn't like anymore. And then that dog happened to fall from the second story window and died. Suspicious. Another case is an elderly neighbor who would babysit Rhoda had like this snow globe. And she would say, Rhoda, when I die, you'll get this snow globe. And Rhoda's like, excellent, I want that snow globe. And then that elderly neighbor dies uh, from a fall down some stairs and Rhoda gets the snow globe. 
Throughout this questioning of these past events, Christine is writing down this evidence and writing these letters that she would she was kind of planning to send to Kenneth, like her husband, but she can't bring herself to actually mail them because it's like telling your husband, hey, I think our daughter's a murderer, like that's pretty big. During Christine's investigations, she discovers that she herself is adopted and is the daughter of a serial killer. <laughs> Um, you know what they say, it skips a generation. Exactly. And so she she fears that she has passed on the bad seed to Rhoda. Meanwhile, there's a maintenance man named Leroy, and he teases Rhoda. You know, he's a little cruel to her and doesn't actually believe she is responsible for Claude's death, but will, like, say that she is to kind of try to get a rise out of her. And one day he's like, yeah, and I bet those weird marks on his face were from the bottom of your shoe and Rhoda's reaction makes it clear that yeah that's that's what happened she hit him in the face and that's how he drowned so Rhoda traps Leroy in the shed and sets it on fire and he burns up and dies but that's considered an accident because you know he smokes and it was a shed there's chemicals that you know it probably he probably just burned up by accident yeah you know how it is (laughs) I don't but Christine is like, by this point, like, no, I know you're, you have the bad seed. <laughs> um, so she confronts Rhoda, who confesses to Leroy, confesses to Claude, to everything. So Christine is like, oh, fuck, I've raised a serial murderer. So she resolves to give Rhoda what she calls vitamins, and it's actually sleeping pills. Uh-huh. Um, to basically give Rhoda an overdose so she'll fall asleep and die. Uh-huh. And... After she gives Rhoda these pills, she shoots herself in the head. Well. When I read this, I was like, holy shit. Like, okay, anyways, let me continue. The landlady overhears the shot and rushes in, sees that Christine is dead and that Rhoda is unconscious. So she rushes Rhoda to the hospital and saves her. Yeah. Jeez, Christine, like... I, I get your like existential issues here about your child being a serial killer and like how that might, you know, really push you to make certain decisions, but maybe you could have waited until after you were sure that the bad guy was dead. Everybody believes that Christine had a mental breakdown and Rhoda destroys any evidence that Christine gathered, including the letters that the unsent letters that were going to go to Kenneth. Um, Kenneth comes home. It's a whole tragedy, but everyone is none the wiser. Rhoda can kill again. Brum, brum, brum. So this was a huge hit. And I would suspect part of that is because it's building off of the juvenile delinquency fears that had been growing since like the 1940s. Right. Um, for example, like Val Luton's Youth Runs Wild film from 1944, just as like a case in point. Yeah. And like the U.S. Senate investigations into juvenile delinquency had happened in 1953, which ultimately blamed comic books. Yeah. Um, and I think there's also a tie to, you know, oh, no, my kid keeps skipping school. It must be something that I as a parent did. Right. Um, or like the fear of like nature versus nurture exactly because the deal here is the suggestion is that she's evil because grandma was evil exactly these questions of like nature versus nurture and psychological um examinations of characters is all present in march's other works 
So some contemporary reviews, I mentioned the New York Times review earlier, um, but for the most part, it was considered, quote, dark, original, yet ultimately appalling. Mm, Sure. And um, I do want to note that even contemporary reviews did call out the false idea of someone having genetic predisposition to murder. Right. But they were like, you know, but besides that... Yeah, and this I, is a really good book. I feel like the 1950s would have been a time where people would still have been like grappling with like what is hereditary versus what is not. Yeah, there's one quote that uh, I noted where someone was like, "The granddaughter of a murderer is no less likely to murder as the granddaughter of a seamstress." Sure. Yeah. So it was published April 8th, 1954. But it got such rave reviews. Um, The fact that its author died probably helped with a bit of that publicity. Sure. And the play adaptation opened eight months later, December 8th, 1954. That that is fast. Yes. Like for a play adaptation, like for someone to look at the sales of the book, be like, let's make that a play, write that play, cast that play do rehearsals, do previews, and then get up on to Broadway in eight months is pretty wild. Well, they had a real professional doing it. Okay. So it was brought to Broadway by James Maxwell Anderson. Uh, Does that name ring any bells to you? Not particularly. He is an extremely big deal uh, in his own play, right? (laughs) gosh thank you he was born in 1888 and um by the time he was 35 he was working in stage productions um his first big hit being what price glory in 1924 okay um some other notable works would be elizabeth the queen in 1930 oh yeah that's a big deal and Both Your Houses in 1933, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. All right. He also wrote the play for Key Largo. Oh, sure. And he was also very adept at adapting from stage to screen. Okay. Um, including What Price Glory, uh, which was adapted to screen uh, later that year that it was uh, first made. And he adapted his 1930 play, Elizabeth the Queen, into The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, a screenplay version uh, for that film in 1939. I also wanted to note that he was involved in adapting the novel All's Quiet on the Western Front into the 1930 movie. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, Into the 50s, he was mainly working still on stage and then also on TV instead of with film. Sure. Um... And he started working on the 1954 The Bad Seed play adaptation pretty much as soon as it was a big hit. Right, sure. Strike while the iron's hot. Exactly. Um, He kept the plot largely the same, um, just kind of streamlining it, changing the conflict to be pretty central around Claude's death, rather than worrying about, like, and then the dog and the elderly neighbor and all these things. But Christine still has, you know, the serial murderer mother you know Mm -hmm. everything else is still in there including the ending right yeah it premiered on broadway and ran for five months before moving to the cornet theater and running for quite a long time there it closed in september 1955 with 334 performances 
reception to the play was just as big as to the book. The play was covered behind the scenes by Vanity Fair. Um, It was shortlisted for the 1955 Pulitzer Prize for drama, um, which would have been Anderson's second Pulitzer, but unfortunately he lost to Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Sure. (laughs) Um, And... Nancy Kelly, the actress who played Christine, won the 1955 Tony Award for Best Actress. Um, Now, I won't go into any detail about the other actors, because I know that they all went on to be in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So I will pass it off to you there. Sure. So with the success of the Broadway play, there was something of a rush to option the film rights. Writer-director Billy Wilder got there first, hoping to film the adaptation as like an independent production following up uh, The Seven-Year Itch, which he made the previous year. But Wilder's efforts hit something of a snag, however, with the production code. Sure, which I'm sure he was also wrestling with with The Seven-Year Itch. Yeah, and the production code you see, forbids the depiction of minors engaging in criminal activity. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, movies had featured juvenile delinquent characters for years. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause had been released the previous year in 1955, just as an example. Um, But Rhoda's actions and her lack of remorse or morality of any kind and the theme of hereditary evil and the fact that Rhoda, you know, gets away with it at the end and Christine dies. These were all considered to be much like, like a bridge too far, you know, a very big hurdle. The implication that Rhoda couldn't help, but be evil because of her genes was also deemed by the production code, a potential bad influence on the youth of America. This idea that like, you know, it would be like, Billy, why did you, you know, why did you skip school? It's like, well, because grandpa skipped school all the time. I can't grandpa help it. Grandpa didn't even graduate yeah. high school. I can't help it. It's 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 my genes. It's your fault. It's in my nature. Mm-hmm. So Wilder dropped the picture. You know, just like, all right, fine. If you're gonna <laughs> give, if you're gonna tell me that literally everything about this is objectionable, I'm not gonna fucking bother with it then only to discover that Warner Brothers had been given the go-ahead by the PCA because they created a new ending where Rhoda would be punished for her crimes. And it was as simple as that. (laughs) Now, in Wilder's view, Warner Brothers had been given preferential treatment because they were a major studio while he was just an independent producer. And so in response to this, he decided to forego working with the production code in the future and just not deal with them at all, leading to films like Some Like It Hot in 1958. Thank you, Billy Wilder. (laughs) (laughs) To direct this movie version of The Bad Seed, Warner Brothers tapped Mervyn Leroy, who was a longtime veteran of Hollywood. Uh, Mervyn Leroy was born in 1900 in San Francisco. His parents were Jewish department store owners, but their divorce and the 1906 earthquake that destroyed the store led to Leroy growing up in relative poverty and getting a job as a newsboy at age 12 to bring in some money to the family. He was a newsie. Yeah. And at the age of 14, he was scouted off the street by a vaudeville show 
uh, to come and be in this show um, where he became known as like a Charlie Chaplin impersonator. Sure. Um, and became quite popular because he was like young and handsome. Uh, Leroy's father died when he was 15. So the boy became a vaudeville pro in order to support himself. After taking a bit part in the classic movie serial, The Perils of Pauline, Leroy decided that he needed to get out of vaudeville and into the movies. So at age 19, he contacted his 40-year-old cousin, Jesse Lasky, who was partner with Samuel Goldwyn and Adolf Zucker in Famous Players Lasky, the progenitor of Paramount Pictures. And Leroy basically showed up and was like, give me a job. Uh, you do. So he worked in a variety of roles through the 1920s as an extra, as a technician, as a assistant camera operator, uh, eventually finding kind of a niche for himself as a gag writer for comedies. And in this capacity, he rose up to be given the chance to direct the film No Place to Go at First National in 1927 now first national was bought out by warner brothers and as sound took over at warner brothers uh leroy's talents became highly in demand as a director of comedies because he had a good handle on dialogue thanks to his vaudeville background and so he directed a huge series of comedies in the late 20s and early 30s he ultimately made 36 films over the course of the 1930s uh which show his evolution into one of Warner Brothers' most versatile directors, making the working-class urban films that were the studio's stock in trade, and kind of becoming the studio's number two go-to director after Michael Curtiz. Wow. Mervyn Leroy's Little Caesar in 1930, starring Edward G. Robinson, was the first true gangster picture out of Hollywood. His film, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, from 1932, critiqued the American penal system, and his musical, Gold Diggers of 1933, offered a bleak assessment of the Great Depression outside of its numerous escapist Busby Berkeley dance numbers. It's a great movie. It's it probably is. like the best Gold Diggers movie. Oh, not even like, not even close. Like, absolutely. <laughs> By 1936, Leroy had been promoted to a producer-director, allowing him to put more time and care into his films, as opposed to the sort of assembly line pace of the early part of his career. His 1937 film, They Won't Forget, was a powerful anti-lynching statement. Wow. In 1938, Leroy was poached by Louis B. Mayer to come over to MGM as a producer, specifically as executive in charge of production for the studio. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah. His signature production in this role was a little film he began prepping in 1938 called The Wizard of Oz. Oh, shit. Now, The Wizard of Oz was a massive undertaking for MGM. Something like six months of pre-production, six months of shooting, and like another six months probably in post-production. They went through three directors. There was a huge budget, tons of costumes and sets and props and things to be built. Um, Massive, massive undertaking. Obviously a huge hit. But Leroy became disillusioned with the large responsibilities of producing and how much like studio politics it suddenly made him like a part of. You know, one of the things with Wizard of Oz was it like exchanged directors like twice with 
Gone with the Wind uh, because of various production problems in both movies. And so after Wizard of Oz, he asked Louis B. Mayer to demote him down to being just a director again. <laughs> Less responsibility. Yeah, kind of the, the James Kirk maneuver. <laughs> yeah. Leroy's 11 pictures at MGM over the next nine years of the 1940s are generally seen as sort of a decline from his Warner's work due to MGM's wartime style of glossy, shallow escapism. Sure. After the war, the fortunes of the movie studios declined for a variety of reasons, and one way studios tried to win audiences back was with large-scale epics that couldn't be done on a TV budget. Leroy's attempt at this was 1941's Quo Vadis, uh, which is a Roman historical biblical epic, which became the second highest grossing picture after Gone with the Wind uh, for a, a brief time. Wow. Set off a trend of big budget, widescreen, Roman, historical, biblical, epic films. You know, The Robe from 20th Century Fox or Ben-Hur from MGM later that same decade. Uh, Spartacus from Stanley Kubrick, etc. Yeah. However, after Louis B. Mayer was forced out of MGM, Leroy no longer felt comfortable working there and returned to Warner Brothers as a producer-director focused on adaptations of Broadway hits, which is how we get to him directing The Bad Seed. Okay. His final motion picture was as an uncredited advisor on the direction of The Green Berets in 1968 when Warner Brothers expressed concerns over John Wayne's ability to both star and direct the picture. Leroy passed away in 1987 and is credited with launching the careers of numerous stars like Loretta Young, Clark Gable, Jane Wyman, Lana Turner, Audrey Hepburn, Robert Mitchum, and Sophia Loren. So we got a really big deal director then. Yes. And his screenwriter from Quo Vadis, uh, John Lee Mayen, was brought along to write the adaptation for The Bad Seed. Man was a experienced screenwriter and a favorite of Clark Gable's. Uh, he was best known for adventure pictures and saucy comedies. That, not, this movie should be neither of those. Yeah, but like, <laughs> this movie also isn't like a social justice, giant, large scale, musical, fantasy, biblical epic. So like... <laughs> okay, okay. I won't put them in a corner. Born in 1902, Mann was the son of a newspaper advertising man. He attended Harvard, and he started out reviewing movies in New York in the 1920s before becoming friends with screenwriter Ben Hecht, who convinced him to move out to Hollywood with him. Hecht and Mann began working on screenplays together, with Mann collaborating with Hecht on 1932's Scarface. Ooh, that's a good movie. The strength of Scarface led to Mann signing a contract with MGM. Uh, he wrote the film Red Dust, among many, many others, but Red Dust featured a star-making turn for Clark Gable. Mann wrote tons of films for MGM, most often with either director Victor Fleming or director Mervyn Leroy. Uh, he worked on the script for The Wizard of Oz. He worked on the script for Gone with the Wind. He also worked on the script for 1941's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, interesting. He was a founding member of the Screenwriters Guild in 1933, and he served in the Air Force during World War II. His partnership with Victor Fleming and Mervyn Leroy continued even after Mayan went independent from MGM. 
and he wrote uh, MGM's 1951 remake of Showboat in addition to Quo Vadis that same year. Now, initially, Warner Brothers wanted the movie version of The Bad Seed to have an all-star cast with Betty Davis playing the role of Christine. Interesting. But Leroy insisted on retaining the original Broadway cast for the adaptation. Uh, Leroy's basic, like, strat for the movie was, if it's not broke, don't fix it, essentially. Uh, So he brought along the original Broadway cast, including uh, Nancy Kelly, who you mentioned earlier. She was 35 years old when the movie was produced. Her mother was silent film star Nan Kelly, uh, who, after retiring from her own career, managed her daughter's. And her younger brother, Jack Kelly, is probably most famous for playing Bart Maverick on TV's Maverick. (laughs) Now, Nancy started as a child model in advertisements. Uh, At one point in time, she was believed to have been the most photographed child in America. Oh, wow. um, Before moving on to become a radio ingenue capable of playing roles of all ages and sexes. And then she became a star on the screen in the 1940s, uh, making 27 films in the 1940s before moving from film to theater in the 1950s, where she would, as you mentioned, pick up a Tony Award for her role in The Bad Seed. Now, while she did receive an Oscar nomination for the film version, uh, she returned to theater after making this adaptation rather than go back to film. Sure. And I bet with her history as a child actress, she was probably a little bit of a mentor to Patty McCormack, who played Rhoda. Leroy largely directed Kelly to repeat her theatrical performance in the movie, um, which does give it a somewhat over-the-top feeling, um, which has contributed to the bad seed being seen as an example of camp. Sure. That's that's unfortunate, um, because that's not what she was going for. You know, on stage, you have to play to the back row. So that's why she would be a little bit more over the top. For sure. Um, But yeah, there's certainly a percentage of this movie's fans who are fans of it for like laughing at the overacting in this movie. Oh, no. Um, And of course, that's that's really the like heart of what camp is, is that it's unintentional. It's ironically enjoying something for the wrong reasons, basically. Regardless, uh, after this film, Nancy Kelly went back to theater for a long career, and she passed away in 1995 at age 73. Okay. Now, you mentioned Patty McCormick, uh, who was eight years old when she originated the role of Rhoda on Broadway, having started as a child actress at age four. Oh, wow. So she was already a, a veteran uh, by the time she was playing Rhoda on Jeez stage. Uh, she was age 10 when the movie was made, but the costume and makeup department took steps to try and make her look like she was still eight. Um, So making her clothing for the movie a little baggy, um, exaggerating her bangs, things like that. Yeah, and I mean, that's only two years. It's it's not the most egregious thing. Yeah, I mean, you can change a lot between eight and ten, though. Yeah, but it's not like a 13-year-old playing age. Sure, sure, sure. Now, unlike many child actors, uh, McCormick kept up her acting career into adulthood, uh, appearing on TV and in movies uh, throughout her life. In fact, she recently cameoed in a 2018 made-for-TV remake of The Bad Seed uh, for Lifetime, and she is 75 years old today. 
Other members of the cast who will be familiar to boomer audiences include Eileen Heckert, who would go on to play Aunt Flo on the Mary Tyler Moore show in the 1970s. William Hopper, who was Private Eye Paul Drake on Perry Mason in the 1950s, and also the son of gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. Why do you say that? Like, why are you whispering? (laughs) I'm sure that that's not a secret. We need to, like, be whispering to each other. I'm sure it had nothing to do with how he got many of his roles. (laughs) Frank Caddy appears in this film. He played shopkeep Sam Drucker on Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, and the Beverly Hillbillies in the 1960s on TV, lest you forget that those three shows shared a continuity. Uh, and you and I will recognize Evelyn Warden from her performance as Icy Spoon in The Night of the Hunter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that name still gives me a good laugh. Now, in addition to adding a new ending that would see Rhoda punished, uh, something of a deus ex machina uh leroy retained the play's curtain call so the original play which has the same ending as the book where rhoda gets away scot-free uh would have this curtain call where nancy kelly would come out in front of the curtain for her bow and then like have patty mccormick come out and then she'd like put patty mccormick over her lap and spank her uh and this was like a way of kind of like dissolving the tension in the audience and like oh giving rhoda like kind of a a metatextual comeuppance yeah um so that's that's in this movie version as well even though we do have a new ending where rhoda is punished in another move to appease critics uh even after getting code approval warner's put an adults only tag on all the movie's advertising oh being worried that oh there's a child in there so people might take their kids to it yeah and just like wanting to i think even not i don't know if they were really even worried about people taking their kids to it so much as wanting to head off any parents groups being like she's a bad influence to children and it's like well we told you not to show the movie to children so whose fault is that now like it's just a way to like wipe your hands of the situation right the film's music is by alex north who is a legendary film composer Mm -hmm. uh, who brought modernism, jazz, and leitmotif to Hollywood scores. Probably most famous for the song called Unchained Melody, which is from the movie Unchained. It's a melody. melody for Unchained, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Films North scored include A Streetcar Named Desire from 1951, Death of a Salesman from 1951, Viva Zapata from 1952, Les Miserables from 1952, Spartacus from 1960, Cleopatra from 1963, The Agony and the Ecstasy in 1965, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966. Famously, a score for 2001 A Space Odyssey that was not used. Yeah, that's why I recognized his name. Uh, Dragon Slayer in 1981 <laughs> and Good Morning Vietnam in 1987. One of these films is not like the other. <laughs> now, 
Leroy, because he did not make many changes from the stage play version, basically the way that he decided to make it, you know, not feel like just filming a stage play was by working with the film's cinematographer to move the camera around the characters and keep the camera in motion, even if the characters are like mostly just in like single locations, like the house. Okay. Um, the film's cinematographer is Harold Rosen, who was also another longtime Hollywood veteran. He'd been working in the industry since 1908 and working as a cinematographer since 1914. His other films include Tarzan the Ape Man, starring Johnny Weissmuller in 1932, Treasure Island in 1934, The Wizard of Oz in 1939, (laughs) The Asphalt Jungle in 1950, and Singing in the Rain in 1952. Nice. The Bad Seed was released into theaters on September 12th, 1956. It grossed $4.1 million against its $1 million budget, putting it in the top 20 at the box office for 1956, making it one of Warner Brothers' biggest hits for that year. It received mostly favorable reviews from critics, although the New York Times panned the cast for their over-the-top theatrics. Nancy Kelly and Patty McCormick were both nominated for Oscars that year. Uh, Nancy Kelly was nominated for Best Actress, She lost to Ingrid Bergman in Anastasia. And Patty McCormick was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, losing to Dorothy Malone in Written on the Wind, while Harold Rosen was nominated for Best Cinematography Black and White, which he lost to Somebody Up There Likes Me. I guess somebody up there didn't like him. Yeah. In 1995, McCormick played a psychopathic mother in indie horror film Mommy, which is sort of funny turnaround. Uh, 1993's The Good Son, starring Macaulay Culkin, is sort of considered (laughs) to be like a gender-swapped version of the idea. Um, But The Bad Seed itself has been remade twice, both times as TV movies, once in 1985 and the other in 2018. The movie itself is available on Blu-ray, from Warner Home Video, and you can rent it online from iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Which means, folks, that you can find this movie on our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Bad Seed from 1956, directed by Mervyn Leroy. See you on the other side, everybody. Hey everybody, I'd like to give a quick trigger warning that uh, our discussion of The Bad Seed is going to include discussion of suicide, murder, mental illness, and, you know, obviously a variety of domestic issues. So uh, just keep that in mind as you continue listening to the show. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Bad Seed from 1956, directed by Mervyn Leroy. Lavoy. One of those two. One of those two. Ben, what did you think of this movie? Well, um, I have a lot of conflicted feelings about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, to pull back the curtain a little bit, we didn't just finish watching it. <laughs> uh, we watched it last night, and I needed to like take a day. To kind of sit with this movie before talking about it. Um, because I came out of this movie feeling really upset. Yeah. Um, it's it's tough to explain. Because I found the movie to be disturbing. And I found it to be upsetting. And I think, you know, that's the point. It is a horror movie. 
so in that regard, like the movie is effective. And usually that's kind of my barometer for like, was a movie successful or not? Right. Like, did it get the reaction out of the audience that it was trying to get? Did it do what it was trying to do? And I think this movie does. But I also don't think it's very good. Yeah. And I, I we're listen, gonna talk about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to we're going to rank it as a horror movie. We, we discussed it and decided beforehand that that was going to happen. But if this is horror, which we've agreed that it is, I don't think it works as horror. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was just really upset after the movie and needed some time to like process. I very rarely have come into a situation like this. Like I've, I've had movies that I didn't like that I thought were bad movies, or I've had movies that I didn't like that I thought were good movies, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, well, I didn't like this, but it's, it's doing what it set out to do. Right. But I've never had like a situation where it was like, Oh no, this this movie did what it set out to do, and I still think it's bad. <laughs> that's that's rarer. Um, it happens, but it's it's rarer. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess usually we talk about the plot first, right? Yeah. So let me get into that. So the bad seed, the film, mm-hmm. um, has the same basic elements as the play. Yes. Except the ending. Yes. And we kind of outlined that before. And I'll still like go through the plot summary, but I think it's good to just, you know, give that expectation out. Yeah, I haven't seen the play, but I like wouldn't be shocked if like the scripts were like near identical. Yeah. So as the film opens, we meet Christine, the loving wife of Kenneth and their darling daughter, Rhoda. We also meet um, a little obnoxious and obtrusive landlady named Monica. And the maintenance man of this apartment complex named Leroy. Or Leroy, depending on who's saying it. <laughs> it's like the director. Right. It's which just, I think is very funny. Yeah, it was just strange to me because like I always said Marvin Leroy. And then there's this character named Leroy, but everyone in the movie is saying Leroy. And that started me thinking like, is the director's name Leroy? <laughs> but then like a bunch of characters come in later in the movie and start saying Leroy for him as well. And it's always really weird to me when I watch any kind of movie. I mean, it comes up most frequently in like sci-fi movies because I watch those a lot. But any kind of movie where like two actors in the same scene standing next to each other will pronounce a word, usually like a name differently. Because it's Mm -hmm. like, can you guys not hear each other? (laughs) Could someone on set just not pick a standard? The script girl was off for lunch. Yeah, for the whole movie? Yeah. Okay. Now, the morning that we meet them, Kenneth uh, is being, he works for the military. He's being shipped out to Washington, D.C. Um, we're not in wartime or anything, but, you know, he's been called away for the next four weeks. And Christine is a little sad about that, but that's okay. And Rhoda has uh, some new shoes, or rather her shoes have some new soles on them. Um, they got some new, like, metal clip-cloppy things, like tap shoes, yeah, cleats. Cleats. Yeah. Tip tappies, you know. Right. And she, uh, Rhoda is also greatly spoiled by Monica, always getting these little gifts like sunglasses, this locket, all sorts of things. 
Rhoda is having a school picnic, and before Christine takes her daughter to this picnic, um, Rhoda throws a little tantrum because she lost the penmanship competition at school to a boy named Claude Daigle. Uh, and she thinks this wasn't fair. Everyone knows my penmanship was better. Um, but Mrs. Fern, the teacher, just hates me and throws a little tantrum about it. One thing that is clarified in the novel that got like lost in the telephone game from novel to play to movie is that the penmanship award is for most improved penmanship. Mm. So the thing is, is that Rhoda is does have the best handwriting in class and she knows it and that's why she's upset she didn't win but her handwriting's been great all year and claude daigle started out with like shitty handwriting and then got like nearly as good as rhoda by the end of the year and that's why he won okay so it's like rhoda can't understand the idea that like you could win an award even though she's the best at it. Yeah. Like she's the best at it. So she should get the award, but it's not an award. She would have ever been eligible to win in the first place. And that detail's kind of lost. We're just told it's the penmanship medal in the movie. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. I didn't know that. So Christine drops Rhoda off at the school picnic and stops to ask uh, Rhoda's teacher, Mrs. Fern about, you know, how is Rhoda doing in school? How do the other children like her? You know, it's a new school. You want to make sure your kid is fitting in. And Mrs. Fern is like, yes, she's very perfect and avoids talking about how Rhoda interacts with the other children, um, mainly because Rhoda is a little bit of a bee. (laughs) (laughs) Christine heads back home and is actually having lunch at Monica's apartment upstairs uh, with Monica's brother And um, this doctor, who is a psychologist, and I keep getting the brother and the psychologist names mixed up, so I'm just Mm. going to say Monica's brother and the psychologist. Yeah, the brother is Emery, and the criminologist is Tasker. I don't think he is anyone's psychologist. Um, Monica mentions going to therapy a lot. She has like a bit of a sort of armchair psychologist hobby. Um, but her therapist was like some guy years ago in London named like Claude Bottom or something like that. I don't remember. I think Tasker is just a friend. Oh, okay. He might also live in the building. Um, I'm not sure. But he is a criminologist specifically, not a um, just like general practice psychologist. And that's one of those like when you're watching a horror movie and a character gets introduced and is like, oh, yeah, I'm a criminologist. You're like, oh, you're going to be called upon to give exposition later. I see. Absolutely. So as Ben said, Monica is a little bit of an armchair psychologist herself, and she begins to push Christine during this lunch to think of associations as uh, Reginald, Dr. Tasker, talks about uh, cases of like serial murderers and stabbings and and not fun things right it comes out through this association game that christine has always wondered if she was adopted then on the radio breaking news um there has been an accidental drowning at the children's picnic at first they're worried that it's rhoda but turns out no it was claude who happens to be you know who rhoda lost the penmanship award to Um, They do worry about how Rhoda is going to react. You know, she's only eight years old, um, and this is a pretty traumatic event. But when Rhoda comes home, she appears unfazed. Now, we, by this point, we've met Leroy, the maintenance man. He 
Leroy the maintenance man. <laughs> um, he is positioned in the film to be... Um, to, to put it bluntly, he's positioned as like mentally infirm, right? And they get this across through a thick southern accent. Yeah. With like a little bit of like a, a Lenny from Mice and Men vibe. Yeah, he's positioned as being like impaired mentally. But despite that, like he is also characterized as being quite clever. Mm-hmm. In his own way. In his own way. Um, also very mean-spirited. Yeah. He teases Rhoda, uh, like splashes water purposefully on her shoes, for example, um, and also mumbles to himself about, like, Christine's all alone. Maybe Leroy can get in town. <laughs> Which never goes anywhere. So it's just like to position him as like, oh, he's going to be like a little bit of a villainous character. Yeah, it's almost as if... They're trying to set up, like, the idea that, oh, maybe Leroy killed the boy or whatever. Like, trying to position it as if, like, he's, like, a red herring. Except that, like, that doesn't super work when, like, the premise of your movie that everyone who bought a ticket knew going in is that, you know, it's the little girl. Yeah. I felt like it was more to justify what will be coming to him. Oh, sure. We need to show him as being particularly shitty so we don't feel particularly bad about his fate. That that feels like a code thing, yeah. Yeah. That being said, this is the same actor from the stage play, so Mm -hmm. maybe this was how he performed it then as well. Sure, yeah. Anyways, so Leroy bugs Rhoda about Laud dying, drowning, um, saying, like, why are you out playing? Your classmate just died. She's like, why should I be sad? I'm not the one who died. And then goes off eating her sandwich. Yeah, Leroy sort of has Rhoda pegged in a way the other adults don't. Because, like, she's super polite and sweet and, like... Perfect. Ju- just perfect, like, yeah. capital P, perfect. Yeah, and because Leroy's... A mean-spirited shit it's like like recognizes like yeah right so he he can tell that rhoda is also a mean-spirited shit uh which is why he's giving her such a hard time yeah now while rhoda is out playing mrs fern comes to christine and you know says yeah rhoda was the last to see claude alive that penmanship pin is missing And the pin is kind of like like a ribbon thing, um, just to, to kind of visualize it. And before the incident, Rhoda, uh, some of the other children saw Rhoda constantly trying to grab the pin off of Claude's shirt. Mrs. Fern, you know, kind of dances around the issue, but is like, mm, there might be something more to this. It's It's a very frustrating conversation for Christine, because Mrs. Fern is basically like, Oh, yes, we're all just very worried about Rhoda because, of course, she was the last one to see him alive. And that could be very upsetting for a girl. And we're not saying that she did anything wrong, but she was the last one to see him alive. Not that we're saying that she has anything to do with him having died, but she was pushing him around a lot before he died. Not that there's we would be implying anything about her, but we are going to say that we don't want her back at the school next year, even though she is a totally perfect and sweet little girl. But she was seen on the beach after Claude died. So, you know, nothing, there's nothing to be upset about, but don't bring her back to the school. Yeah. (laughs) During that whole conversation, Mrs. Daigle, the wife, the mother of Claude, um, barges in. 
She is drunk, and uh, Mr. Daigle follows, um, not drunk, but having difficulties getting his wife home. So Mrs. Daigle barges in, and she says, oh, I know something's being hidden. Where's the pin? Um, I, I know you're hiding something, Mrs. Fern. Like, something's going on here. So Mrs. Daigle gets taken home by Mr. Daigle. Mrs. Fern leaves, and Christine's concerns over Rhoda's behavior and lies about seeing Claude in the first place or anything like that, all of those concerns surface when she happens to find the penmanship pin in Rhoda's room. Christine confronts Rhoda, and Rhoda lies again, saying, no, Claude gave it to me. I gave him 50 cents, and uh, because I gave him 50 cents, I got the pin. Yeah, but she's she's not, like, she's good at lying, but she's not good at lying, like, Immediately. Yeah, exactly. So it is one of those things where it's like, I'm going to talk more about this later, but it's very Trumpian. It's like, yeah, no, no, I had nothing to do with that. I've never even heard of Claude Daigle. What are you talking about? Let's talk about how great I am and something different. Well, maybe I did see Claude a few times, but he gave me the pin. It was totally innocent. Okay, maybe I did push him around a bit, but you know, like, yeah, absolutely. So during this whole time, Christine has been ruminating on the association thing that Monica kind of put her through earlier. So she arranges for Dr. Task, Reggie, to come over for some drinks. And then later that evening, um, a visit from her father, who she hasn't seen in like a year. So she's very excited about her father visiting, um, who also happens to be a reporter on crime stories, has written some fiction as well. Um, Dr. Tasker is very excited to meet him as well. During drinks, uh, Christine asks Reggie about um, hereditary inclinations to violence. Mm. She does this under the guise of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write things. But like, it's really, no, I want to know if my kid is yeah. terrible. It's it's one step up from I'm asking for a friend of a friend of mine. Exactly. Now, Dr. Tasker is like, uh, yeah, there are cases of it. And... Christine's dad is like, no, there's not. That's a whole lot of bunk. Um, And so we have this kind of nature versus nurture discussion starting in that scene. Once Dr. Tusker leaves and Christine and her father are like just by themselves, she shares her own fears and memories of even being adopted. And her father ends up confirming that, yes, you were adopted. You're the daughter of a serial killer. And that's when Christine really seems to break because now she fears that she's passed on the bad seed to Rhoda. Yeah. Now, during this time, uh, during the movie, um, we've seen that Leroy has continued to tease Rhoda, accusing her of killing Claude, but with a stick and that there's blood on that stick and the police are going to find that stick, tell that there's blood on it and then lock you up. And Rhoda's like, no, you're lying because it wasn't with a stick, but it has her concerned about remnants of blood on the murder weapon. Evidence. Evidence. So that night, Rhoda tries to sneak off to the incinerator to burn her shoes. Christine catches her and then gets the full story of how Claude died. Rhoda was chasing after him, wanting the pin on the wharf to try to get away from her. She caught him and hit him with her shoe. And um, remember, her shoes had the cleats on the bottom. 
Um, so she, he gave her the pin um, and then was crying and saying, yeah, I'm going to tell on you. And so she continued to hit him and basically knocked him off the dock, um, hit his hands with the cleats to have him not climb out. And that is how he drowned. Yeah, it's it's one of these things where, like, again, like the lies before she starts by trying to play it off more innocently. And then as the histrionics between her and Christine continue, it just gets like worse and worse and also like less and less defensible. Cause at first it's just like, well, I was upset at him cause I wanted the pin and I hit him and he like fell into the water or whatever. And you can almost play it off as like, okay, well she's eight and, you know, doesn't realize what she's doing and she was upset and kids have, you know, volatile tempers and it was an accident and, you know, she's responsible, but it's like manslaughter. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like, like toddler manslaughter. Sure. But then like, as the details go on, it's like, oh yeah, so I hit him and he gave me the pin and he wasn't even in the water at that point. It's like, you got what you wanted, you could have walked away. But no, then I kept hitting him so he fell in the water and it's like, okay, yeah, because he was going to tattle on her. And then it's like, and then he tried to climb out. Yeah, because it's it's they found these crescent shaped marks on his head and his hands. So like mom's like, well, what's the why did you hit his hands? And she's like, oh, because he was trying to climb up and I fucking scar and Simba'd him into the fucking water. <laughs> like <laughs> long live the penmanship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like and so once you get to the like, oh, no, I purposely stopped his attempts to save himself. That's when you like cross the line from like manslaughter to like second degree murder to like first degree murder yeah christine i mean actually i can't say whether she handles it well or not this news uh but she ultimately decides kate burn the shoes yeah she handles it honestly i think as well as any normal person could which is has a complete breakdown has no idea what to do and is generally paralyzed by inaction yeah yeah so they burn, burn the shoes. Yeah, burn the shoes. The next day, Leroy is again teasing Rhoda and is saying, like, yeah, they'll find the stick. And she's like, I know that there's no such thing as, like, a dog sniffing stick hound. A stick bloodhound. Stick bloodhound. So, like, whatever. And uh, then Leroy notices that she's not wearing her fancy cleat shoes. And he's like, oh, I know what you did. Like, you use the cleats. And she's like... No, no, I didn't. And he's like, yeah, and then they're going to find the cleats. And she's like, no, I burned them. They won't find them. And he's like, I, uh, yes, uh, and I found them in the incinerator. And she's like, give them back. And then she turns very, very, like, deliberately, like, give me back my shoes. And is just very intense about it. And then that's when Leroy goes like, oh, shit. No, she did kill Claude with the shoes. Yeah, he was just teasing her this whole time being an asshole. I do love that he like Columbo's into like getting her to reveal that she's guilty. <laughs> like it's like Columbo does that on purpose though. No, but that's what I mean. <laughs> like I just love that it's one of those like classic like and then you killed him with the shoes, didn't you? And you hid those shoes somewhere and it's like, "No, I burned the shoes." And it's like, "Oh, so you did kill him." <laughs> like <laughs> So he's like, oh, fuck. Now, this altercation is interrupted by Christine coming home. And she's like, no, no talking to Leroy. And Leroy, leave my girl alone. Um, because she's like trying to keep this as quiet as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, after that altercation, Leroy goes to the incinerator, sees that 
indeed, the cleat shoes are in there. And he's like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. He knows. So Rhoda and Christine go upstairs uh, to their apartments. um, And Monica is there. And Monica can tell that Christine is barely holding it together. She is, like, falling apart at the seams. Rhoda leaves to go get a popsicle from the ice cream truck and happens to sneak a couple of matches out with her. We'll put a pin in that. Hmm. Um, and Monica is like, hey, Christine, like, are you sleeping? Like, are you getting your vitamins? Here, I'll give you some vitamins and some sleeping pills, and this will help you with whatever you're dealing with because you're not wanting to tell me what's going on, um, but you need help, clearly. Then, guess who drops in? Mrs. Daigle. Hmm. Drunk again, and um, she comes in and says, you know, I just want to see Rhoda and ask her some questions, because I know she knows something, and I know people are hiding something, and where's the pin, and yada, yada, yada. Now, Rhoda does come back in and is interrogated a little bit by her, but manages to get out thanks to Monica, and Christine is, again, clearly struggling to hold things together, because... Before, when Mrs. Daigle was around, Christine didn't know anything and just had, like, mild suspicions. And now she knows the full story and can't bear to see Claude's mom like this. Yeah. She manages to get Mrs. Daigle to leave, and um, Monica comes back in and says, yeah, um, Rada went out to play. And they're talking again about the, the sleeping pills and the vitamins. And then suddenly Rhoda comes in and just goes immediately straight to her piano room and starts playing the piano. Um, And that's around when uh, Christine and Monica hear faint muffled cries of help. And they're like, well, what's, what's going on? And it's a little hard to hear because the piano is so loud. As the cries for help grow louder, they notice smoke outside. And they realize that Leroy, uh, who is down in like the basement shed, is stuck inside while there's a fire. So Monica's brother and Dr. Tasker, who were upstairs, um, run down and they try to get Leroy out. And Christine looks on from her window and we don't get to see anything, but it's clear that Leroy is completely engulfed in fire and runs out and succumbs to the fire. Yeah, like we're on Christine's face looking out the window the whole time. But yeah, it's like he he's running around in front of her on fire collapses and dies uh we like hear like him gurgling to death basically dr tusker and monica's brother uh do manage to put out the fire and they say yeah i think it was just like a cigarette lit some straw but christine knows differently she saw rhoda trying to grab some matches and told her not to um but rhoda snuck some anyways and christine also knew that leroy was asking about claude so she's put two and two together and she's like completely in pieces. Um, yeah. And like Rhoda was playing her piano the entire time too. Like when like there was a very loud dying man like outside, right? Like the, through that entire scene where we're hearing his screams, we're also hearing Rhoda's piano like clinging through the same fucking like little kids practice piece over and over again at like an increasing pace. Yeah. That night, Christine appears calm. Uh, She's reading a bedtime story to Rhoda, and Rhoda keeps interrupting, saying like, yeah, you know, uh, Leroy, you know it was me? Okay. And Christine's like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's fine. 
and ends up giving Rhoda um, these sleeping pills. Now, what's interesting is she's like, yeah, we have some new vitamins for you. And Rhoda's like, oh, can I see the bottle? Which is like, why are you asking to see the bottle, Rhoda? Because Rhoda's clever. Yeah. But the bottle says vitamins, so she takes them and takes like six or eight of them. Yeah, which is what Christine tells her to take. The movie is set up that she already was like taking like vitamins, like fucking, you know, not Flintstones chewables, but basically, you know, little kids vitamins or whatever. So it's not like this is like a totally new thing in their routine. It's just like, oh, this is a new type and you have to take like 10 of them at once. That's just how they work. Yep. And they're from Monica. So you know that they're fine. Yeah. So she drugs Rhoda and then carries her off to bed. And then we see Christine head into her bedroom, close the door, and then we hear a shot. Cut to, we are in the hospital, and Kenneth is waiting there along with Monica, Christine's dad, Monica's brother, and Dr. Tasker. And it's made clear that Christine is in critical condition and in a coma, Um, but, you know, at least Kenneth still has Rhoda. Because, as Monica kind of explains, um, I heard the shot, went in, got Rhoda to the hospital, and um, Christine to the hospital. Yeah, so they like pumped Rhoda's stomach or whatever. Yeah. And so they don't know why Christine did any of this because Christine, you know, a couple times tried to call Kenneth and then thought better of telling him all of this news over the phone. So no one knows anything about Rhoda. Now, that night, um, Rhoda sneaks out in the middle of a rainstorm at one point, uh, she had asked Christine, where where did you end up putting my cleats? Because we took them out of the incinerator. Yeah, because the, the, most of the shoe burned, but like obviously the metal yeah. wouldn't. So it's like, what did you do with the metal? And Christine says, oh, I put them in the water out by the pier uh, where Claude happened to die. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rhoda is going out there to go find it. And as she is making her way in the rainstorm, we cut back to the house and Kenneth gets a phone call from the hospital that Christine is out of the coma and she's alive. And she's like, oh, I hope you can forgive me for the things I've done. And Kenneth's like, don't worry about it. Just get your rest. Everything will be fine. And they're like, oh, I love you so much. We cut back to Rhoda getting a fishing net out of the boathouse and trying to fish out the pieces of metal when suddenly lightning and she she blows up. <laughs> she blowed up real good. She blows up. The end, but wait. We get the curtain call. And we end on Christine's actress, Nancy Keller, who goes, and then as for you, little girl, and goes over to Patty McCormick and spanks her. And she's like screaming no, but like it's laughing a, it's a, it's about a gag, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, and that's the end. That's a lot of movie. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of dialogue in this movie because it's like a filmed stage, stage play. play. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you have to like give all the details in a plot summary because, you know, this movie, this stage play is like a firm Chekhov's gun believer. Mm-hmm. Like everything that happens gets set up earlier in the movie to some degree or another. Yeah. Right. Which I do appreciate. Like the script's very tight that way. Like even even Christine's suicide is set up because we know that they have a gun in the house from like an early scene when she's talking about how she doesn't like guns. And she's like, I don't even like the fact that Kenneth keeps a revolver in the house. Right. So like every little thing does get set up and then paid off. 
Yeah. How about you tell us about your strong feelings about it? Or do we want to talk? How would you like us to approach this? Um, I don't really know because like, I feel like I don't know really where to start, but if I start somewhere, I'll just keep going. Okay. Um, so do we want to talk about kind of the movie first and then your response to it? Yeah. Or like, what did, I don't know. I want to hear what your thoughts are and like what you thought and what did you like and, and, and stuff, because I feel like, like I said, once I get going, I think I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) Fair enough. This movie felt far too much like a play Mm -hmm. for my liking. Mm -hmm. Their interactions felt too staged, Mm -hmm. um, which is weird because there's moments in, for example, Dracula, where you know that Lugosi and Edward Van Sloan have rehearsed and done this scene countless times, and they carry it off beat for beat really well, thinking specifically of like that... uh, crucifix in the face scene yeah yeah the confrontation scene in like the living room yeah Yeah. in the bad seed they kept talking over each other Mm -hmm. and i think that was done in a way to make it feel more like real yeah more naturalistic but it just felt like oh did you jump in ahead of time by accident like the way that they interacted just felt way too staged yeah you've you've basically immediately hit on what my big problem with this movie is, and I think I can talk a little bit about it without getting too much into my whole whole spiel. Um, But, you know, before we watched the movie, I talked about how like, there's a certain response to this movie. That's like, this is a camp movie because everyone's performances are so over the top because they didn't really tone it down from their stage performances. And so things are a little bit histrionic and that's all true. But I think a thing that should be made clear is I think the cast all give very good performances. Mm -hmm. It's just that they are definitely theatrical performances. Like they have not changed what they're doing at all. And so they are delivering performances that are for the stage. And which is surprising, especially from like Nancy Kelly, who you said did film work before going to the stage. So I thought she would bring some of that back. Well, we know that Mervyn Leroy basically like decided to just have them do their stage performances under the like, if it's not broke, don't fix it Mm -hmm. philosophy. The thing about Kelly is I feel like she bears the brunt of this criticism a little unfairly, probably because for the most part, she's on screen almost the entire movie and has the most like visible emotional breakdown. Yeah, her role is the most dynamic. But I don't think she like her portrayal of Christine's emotional descent, her breakdown is very effective. It's heart-wrenching. Um to me it felt very real. Um it was one of the things that made the movie really difficult for me. One of the things that left me upset after watching it is that you're essentially watching like the 2-hour sustained emotional mental breakdown of a woman right um and it's difficult to watch because of some structuring problems that come from how stagey this movie is that Mm -hmm. i'll talk about later but if we're just talking about the performances right now nancy kelly's performance feels really real to me it doesn't feel over the top it does feel like a stage performance and everyone's performance feels like stage performances um because 
the actors aren't acting with each other. They're, they're not acting at each other. They're acting at the non-existing audience. Okay. Because in theater, that's mm-hmm. really common. You act to the audience. I mean, soliloquies are like the ultimate act to the audience thing. And the movie even includes some soliloquies in it. And it works on stage. If you are going to do it in movies... People do it, and this movie does it this way, people do it so often as if they're trying to stage it like the characters are just talking to themselves, like as if that's a thing that people do, like once all their friends leave a room, they just sit down in a chair and say, oh, what am I going to do though? I'm so afraid of Rhoda and blah, blah, blah. Usually it doesn't work because A, people don't do that, and B, the dialogue usually has been expressly written by the writer of the play as if the character was talking to the audience. Yeah. The way, the only way to make soliloquies work in film is to literally have your characters break the fourth wall. They have to do the Ferris Bueller thing and look right at the camera and talk to the movie audience the same way that actors do on stage. Yeah, like whether that's Laurence Olivier in Richard the Third or The Office. Right, yes, precisely. The actors, because they're doing this stage style of acting... They're acting to an audience that doesn't exist. And because the movie's being filmed like a movie, they aren't acting to camera. They're often, like, delivering monologues to off-camera. Like, there's so many... Like, I don't even think they changed the blocking. Yeah. Because there's so many scenes where characters are theoretically talking to each other, but they're both facing the non-existent fourth wall... They aren't looking at the camera because the camera's being dynamic and being a movie camera, but they're both looking off camera instead of looking at each other and like talking as if talking to an audience. Like a great example of this is the scene where Christine breaks down talking to her dad about her fears of being adopted. And she's sort of working out these fears out loud and remembers like a recurring dream that she always used to have and starts describing it. And it becomes very clear that this dream is actually a memory and, you know, it's getting more clear as she talks about it. And then she remembers like her real name and like all these things. She is not, she doesn't fucking look at her dad once during that monologue. She's looking out towards the wall of the house that we never see. That's one of the other things that makes it feel like a play is, Yes, we're trapped in the same living room for the majority of the movie, but, you know... It's like it, the three-camera setup, like on I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah. because we, we never really turn the camera around and look in the direction that would be the audience on the play either. We're always basically still looking at them from the same angle. And it's really odd because, yes, the camera moves around, but it still keeps that wall to its back. Yes. There's only two shots in this movie that really stood out to me as being quote-unquote cinematic Mm -hmm. and the first is when Rhoda gets permission to go burn the shoes yes um because she's like silhouetted and in the foreground and Christine is way off in the background in the light Mm -hmm. and then the second time is when it's the night that uh she's going to kill Rhoda And um, there's a moment when the camera is down and looking up um, and everything is kind of underlit Mm. in a very film noir-y German expressionist vibe. Right. But it's like not even for most of the scene. It's just for like a moment. The other thing is the new ending, 
mm-hmm. which is basically everything after she shoots herself. You can tell it's the new ending, not just because it's like a weird out of nowhere reversal of the previous events, but also it's the only section of the film where the story starts to be told cinematically. Yes. Where characters like shut the fuck up and where we actually see things happen rather than have those things described to us after the fact. Um, like uh, the intercutting, um, yeah. any any bit of that. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, there's intercutting for suspense between Kenneth on the phone and, and Rhoda going out in the rain. And we don't get that through any of the rest of the movie because, of course, you can't intercut in a play, right? I think I just need to get into my spiel because... At least part of it. The issue with this movie, the reason this movie isn't good, 100% lies at the feet of Mervyn Leroy. Okay. He did not direct this movie well. And like far be it for me to question this like Hollywood veteran who has like this like, you know, such this impressive CV, but more about this play needed to be changed for it to work as a movie. Because... The actors are performing to a non-existent audience, which I keep pointing out, right? Like in that scene where Christine is talking about that dream, it's a beautifully written monologue and Nancy Kelly gives a great performance of it. And it's a hundred percent the kind of monologue that like, if you were coming into audition for a theater company, you'd like pick that monologue and give it your all. But yeah, she's not talking to her dad. Her dad's like standing behind her and like talking out towards the audience as well in response as they're both like looking in the same direction. And because the actors aren't really responding to each other, it creates a very super disquieting effect, this very upsetting, disturbing effect, in that it seems like no one in this movie is paying attention to each other. So, like, it's super fucking obvious that Christine is having a nervous breakdown way before anyone in this movie notices it, because she's talking to people like Monica eventually notices it and it's almost like she just kind of notices like how Christine is acting how Nancy Kelly is acting is not in sync with how the other people in the story are perceiving her and you don't notice that as much in theater because the performance in theater the the subconscious understanding of theater that you have when you watch it is the actors performing to you which means that their expression of their internal feelings can be external in a play. And you understand that that's kind of for you to understand their inner turmoil and not for the other characters? Right. Okay. In cinema, you can do all of that if you want. Like, you can have really theatrical performance styles. But the baseline understanding, the baseline subconscious understanding that audiences have of movies is that they are far more quote-unquote realistic in that they're supposed to be way more like if you just put a camera on these people as they were in the moment obviously there's a whole bunch of stuff we can get into about how it's that's not really the case and blah 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 blah. but especially for like a mainstream studio hollywood movie that's the audience expectation so you get this thing where like it feels like christine breaks down too soon yeah in terms of how the other characters react that being said It does feel like she breaks down at about the right pace, given what she's learning when she learns it. But it's just weird when she's like, oh, hi, Monica, I just, I just, nothing's, nothing's wrong. I'm just, I'm just, everything's fine. And like Monica's reaction is like, oh, dear, have you not been sleeping well? 
Could I, could you get some like sleeping pills? Maybe is something the matter? I can't quite tell. Yeah. It, and it's like, it's bitch. very frustrating. There were many times where I was like, very frustrated by Monica. Like she's kind of designed to be a little bit of a frustrating yes. character, but I was frustrated by, I think you hit the nail on the head of like how she doesn't see Christine. Like right. no one sees the way that she's uncomfortable talking about the association things that clearly like her fears of being adopted are more than just a universal thing. Every right. kid goes through. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you know, after she shoots herself and tries to kill Rhoda and they're in the hospital and Rhoda's fine and Christine's in a coma or whatever, like they're all talking about like, we have no idea why she could have, would have done this. And it's like the day she did this, even if you don't know anything about Rhoda, the day she did this, she watched a man burn to death in her backyard. Yeah. And Monica's like, oh, well, she did seem a little bit upset about Leroy's death as if like, she wasn't like visibly shaken. Like it's wild. And the other thing about this theatrical performance style that undercuts a lot of the movie is people in this movie are so fucking loud. This plot is reliant on secrets not being found out and keeping things quiet, but absolutely everyone screams everything at the top of their lungs all the fucking time. Yeah. And what's more, it's often just before someone who shouldn't hear that thing comes walking through the door. And in theater, that's like tension, right? It's like Christine being like, Rhoda, did you kill that boy? And Rhoda being like, yes, I fucking murdered him. And then someone walks through the door and they're like, hi. And everyone's like, oh, um... Yeah, I was just talking to Rhoda about school and shit. And that works on stage, but in a movie, because there's more of an assumption of realism, all of these fucking characters live in the same fucking house with one another. Yeah. And someone will come through the door seconds after someone will have finished yelling like, I'm a fucking murderer. And then someone will come <laughs> through the door and it's like, unless this house uses soundproofing foam for its insulation, they would have heard that shit through the door. Like occasionally someone will come into a scene being like, oh, I thought I heard yelling in here. And it's like, you know, like even in the scene where Christine's talking to her dad and it's like, well, she got rid of Rhoda. Rhoda's upstairs with Monica. And it's like, bitch, I've lived under people and above people, right? In apartments. And like, she's in her there with her dad, just like screaming, like, I'm the daughter of a serial killer. And I think my daughter's killing people too. And it's the worst. And I hate her and everything. And it's like, you would have definitely heard that from upstairs yeah. or like, Rhoda just fucking screams things outside all the time. Like when yeah. she's talking to Leroy and like kids, she's talking like how kids talk. Kids fucking yell as like their baseline volume. But like she's just yelling. Like she's so concerned about people finding out that she murdered Claude Daigle that she's willing to do follow up murders. But she's also like outside just like screaming about how she killed Claude Daigle. And like, <laughs> you know, and then Rhoda, like Christine will open a window and be like, What's that, Rhoda? What are you talking about with Leroy outside? I heard you talking with him. And they're like, oh, it was nothing. And it's like, yeah, bitch, like, how did you not hear that? And so that increases this sense of, like, disconnect yeah. that the characters have from each other where nobody feels like they're acting reasonably. And also, it, these are clearly, like, the worst neighbors. Right, right. 
The problem isn't the story. The problem isn't the writing. The problem isn't even the performances. The performances are good. The problem is the style of performance. And the other problem is, even if you wanted to give everyone the over-the-top theater style, for it to work as a movie, you needed to coordinate these performances so that they are in sync. So that the degree to which Monica shows concern is consistent with what Monica has seen and heard from Christine. And the person whose job is to coordinate actors' performances is the fucking director, which is why I lay the blame for all of this shit at Leroy's feet. Mervyn. Mervyn Mervyn Leroy. Leroy. Yeah, not (laughs) character Leroy. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, How much control over use of this score is on the director. A decent amount. Okay. Because the other thing that I thought was weird about this movie is the score is very, like, in your face. Mm -hmm. And that would match Christine's performance but it gets used in times when something a little more laid back, mm. a little less in your face, probably would have done better. Mm-hmm. So it's a little like much in the beginning. It makes it a little comical at mm. the end. Yeah. It's what pushes it over the top so often. Because if you had a really like subtle, performance style or at least like fucking subtle compared to this right like a little bit dialed down then having the bombastic score helps like build the material up Mm -hmm. to that melodramatic height but when the cast is all fucking yelling all the goddamn time at full maximum tears in their eyes wailing melodrama to have the score be at the same level is part of what pushes it from like melodrama into camp and what starts getting you laughing watching the movie because it just gets to be too much. Yeah. Yeah. We we start so high. So then like, now where do we go? Mm-hmm. That was uh, my general feeling for a lot of this. And yes, I agree that Nancy Kelly does a really great job as Christine and that it is like a very good performance. It, to me, still felt like we start so high mm-hmm. Like, her her breakdown starts too early. Well, it's because Christine doesn't start in a strong place to begin with. Mm-hmm. And part of that's necessary for the plot, because in order for Rhoda, and I'm going to talk a lot more about this later, but in order for Rhoda to make sense as a character, her parents kind of have to suck. Like, her parents have to be a little bit weak. Like, dad's out of the house all the time, fine, we'll give Kenneth a pass. But Kenneth also, like... Yeah, he's a military dad, but he doesn't come across as like a military dad. Like yeah, this is a guy. Yeah, like this is a guy who's like mailing like plush unicorns to his daughter like every <laughs> afternoon to make sure she doesn't miss him. Um, and Christine comes off as a kind of mom who like because Rhoda comes across as so perfect. Um, and again, I'll talk more about this later. But like, you get the impression that like she's been very hands-off with Rhoda for the past eight years because it's like, well, no, see, she's perfectly polite and quiet and just doing her own thing and she's always nice and polite and perfect. So, like, I don't need to do anything as a mom. And so she starts out in such a position of weakness where it's like, 
she's so clearly not willing to do anything about anything that her breakdown into like complete and utter despair does feel like it it comes too fast um, because we aren't starting from like a position of strength. Yeah, I think actually that is really interesting thinking about the role of parental discipline. Yeah. This, so like people have different opinions on whether spanking is a good discipline or not. Mm -hmm. In the case of this movie, the cultural context is that, yes, it's what you do to discipline your child. Yeah, in the 1950s, it would be culturally normal. There's no discipline for Rhoda. That's right. There's excuses for her behavior, which is why at the end it's like, yeah, spank her. That would have stopped all of these murders. Like, that would be, like, what is relieving the tension at the end. Okay, so I think this leads us into being able to talk about two things. Mm -hmm. One of these things is about the ending, but I think there's a lot to talk about the ending, so I don't want to get into it too much. But basically, they changed the ending so that Rhoda would end up punished, right? So the other thing that hampers this movie, aside from sticking too close to the play, is trying to be less objectionable to the PCA. Mm -hmm. And sticking close to the play actually helps them with that in the sense that in the play, in in most plays, you have a lot of action that happens like off stage that gets like reported. And the more you can keep things off screen, the less objectionable it is to the PCA. So that's part of it. The ending, of course, is entirely designed to make the production code guys happy. Um, so you have this ending where Rhoda gets punished by a stroke of lightning. Getting um, exploded. Right, by God. By um, God. <laughs> and so the thing is, is like, it's so, it's it's ridiculous because it's a fucking lightning bolt from heaven. And the the end comes so close afterwards. Yes. Almost like ripping off a Band-Aid. Yes. And then like almost immediately after the words, the end have come up, they're already being like, ah, okay, wait, but there's more. It really feels like the movie goes out like apologizing for itself. Yeah. And the thing is, the movie ideally, frankly, should have ended with Christine's murder-suicide. And that would have been an absolute gut punch. And that can be how Rhoda's punished. Like Rhoda can die of an overdose. And there it is. She's punished. And Christine pays a heavy toll. She pays the ultimate toll, you know, for it. Um, And so you have this dramatically satisfying ending because Christine's struggle through the movie is like, what am I going to do? And this impossible position she's been put in where she doesn't want to see any harm come to her little girl who she loves, but also her little girl's a fucking monster. And what are you going to do? And so she's like, well, I'm the mom, so I'll kill her myself. And then I can't really live with that. So I'll kill myself. And like, that's dramatically satisfying. The problem is that was never going to be the fucking ending because even if Rhoda gets punished in that version, the code does need her to be punished, but it also explicitly does not allow for suicide to be used as the solution to problems in plots. Yeah. That's a specific code thing. So Christine has to survive. And if she survives, but Rhoda died of the overdose, then she has to like live her life with the horror of having killed her daughter. And that also is a big ethical conundrum for the code. So instead they both survive and Rhoda gets killed by God because God can do whatever he wants. You can't fucking question God. (laughs) Um, They try to make it dramatically satisfying by having it be because she went out in a rainstorm to go get the fucking metal cleats. So it's like, oh, if she hadn't have done that. So she is kind of still being brought down by dramatic narrative, blah, blah, blah. But her fixation on the metal like isn't 
well set up enough. Like it is set up the same way everything in this movie is, but it's not set up enough. Like we've basically forgotten about it by the time that ending comes out. So it's like, why is she out in the rain? Why is she going outside in the rain? Um, like at first I was like, is she going to the hospital to kill Christine (laughs) because she's heard on the telephone that her mom's going to be fine? Like what's going on here? And then she just gets fucking hit by lightning. And it's not even like, it's not like she fucking like gets the fishing pole and holds it way up high above her head and gets hit by lightning. She like scoops the metal out and is like kneeling on the ground crouched when she gets like hit and the pier explodes. So it's not dramatically satisfying. And then we get the curtain call, which they did in the play, and we talked about that. But the reason it's there in the play is to cut the tension of the ending where Rhoda survives to kill again and have Rhoda get some comeuppance metatextually. Rhoda doesn't need to get comeuppance metatextually in the movie because God fucking hit her with lightning. So it just feels like this weird like gilding of the lily at the end, and mm-hmm. it makes... Again, like I said, it makes it feel like the movie's just like apologizing for itself at the end of the movie. Yeah, I think if they were going to go with this ending, they should not have had the movie end as soon as the lightning hits. Mm. They should have had the lightning hit. Then Kenneth gets the call that Christine's going to be okay. Right. Um, You'll have a little bit of implication that God is also forgiving Christine. Sure, right. Um, And then they have to go, oh shit. Rhoda's dead and to show a little bit of that like sadness yet relief on Christine I think that would have been a much more powerful ending yeah and you could just tell that they weren't prepared to deal with the emotions of that like to deal with the, the the complexity of that the other thing I think we can talk about a bit here if we're talking about discipline and like the parents and everything is we can get into this whole issue of hereditary evil. Sure. So fact of the matter is, like, in my opinion, this story could work entirely without it. Like, I think it's here probably because it's the theme that William March was, like, interested in exploring. Yeah. But as the story turns out, it's not needed. It's not what's interesting here. Giving Christine a killer mom to explain why Rhoda is a psychopath feels extremely old-fashioned not just scientifically but also as like a narrative device yeah when you have your own characters saying that's an outdated mode of thinking right like the characters strange the characters are calling out that it's old-fashioned in the movie they call it hogwash um yeah they're like lampshading it basically And and the movie almost tries to like have its cake and eat it too because at the end christine's dad goes back to the doctor before Mm -hmm. they leave the hospital to be like do do you think this hereditary evil thing is an actual thing and the dude's like no christine's dad is like yeah that's what i thought it's a one in a million thing right so so the thing is is that initially the movie posits this as this nature versus nurture question you know one of the things about the movie or any movie that you're watching that tackles a philosophical idea by using like a this or that you know kind of versus thing is the movie gets to have the luxury of framing the debate for you so the way they frame the debate here is either evil is hereditary or it's a product of environment and 
when they talk about it being a product environment, like one of the reasons why Christine is so sure that like it has to be because she has a serial killer mom that Rhoda is evil is because Rhoda's environment's so good. She lives in like an upper middle class family that has, you know, a lot of dough, not enough dough to like own their own house, house, but like enough dough that they're like living on the main floor of a house. And it's clearly very nice. Rhoda has her own fucking piano in her room. Like they're doing all right. Right. And to the fact where like most of Mrs. Daigle's scenes with Christine, like, yeah, she's upset about her kid being dead and that maybe Rhoda had something to do with it. But there's this big undercurrent of classist stuff in those scenes too where she's like well you're so perfect and you have everything and i'm just a little person after all so what does it matter and you know this kind of stuff um so because rhoda has a good environment it can't be her environment that made her evil so it has to be the hereditary thing and yeah it takes until the end of the movie like you just mentioned for a doctor to be like i mean you can just be psychopathic out of nowhere like it can just be a random mutation and that's totally true like people can just have mental illness. Yeah. Um, the the thing about the hereditary evil thing is it feels so fucking like Victorian in terms of this, like the thing where it's like you have to over explain yeah. everything. Like it, it, it's in that same wheelhouse as like having to be like, oh yeah, the reason why I'm telling you this story about Dracula is because I came across all these letters about it. And it's like, you don't have to... Guy, you don't have to do it. It's fine. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, if the hereditary evil thing was what the story was about, the story would be structured differently. Because the emotional through line of the hereditary evil thing is the horror of what have I passed on mm-hmm. to my kids, right? And that's a very relatable fear. Um, you know, kids who didn't have great parents fear passing on that not greatness to their kids, you know, and it's a fear that, I mean, listen, one of my favorite horror movies of the last 10 years was called Hereditary, Yeah, right? So like, it's a thing that can work, but the movie isn't pumping that fear. The movie brings it up pretty much solely just as a way to explain why Rhoda is how she is. And that just sort of muddies the waters by bringing up a bunch of questionable shit that kind of bogs down the story in the middle because Christine's already basically figured out that Rhoda's bad before she... Confirming the source. Right. That, Quote, that, unquote, source. Exactly. So we don't really f- live in that world of like, what if I pass something on to Rhoda? You know, that's not really the fear because the fear from the beginning is, you know, it's not what have I doomed my child to, it's what do I do with a murderous child? Yeah. And that's already the fear by the time she gets that explanation. So there isn't really a sense of like, oh, what have I passed on? It's more, it's not a fear, it's a guilt. It's, oh, I'm responsible for this. Which is one of the things that is part of how this movie plays more to melodrama than to horror. Because if you have that fear, what did I pass on? That's horror. But if you have guilt where you're blaming yourself about stuff and crying about it, that's melodrama. Yeah. This movie is explicitly for adults, Mm. like to the point where it's on the poster. Right. Um, so I think it's trying to be about the horror of parenthood. Yes. Um, passing on things that you feel may be wrong with you, Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's a, 
an illness or proclivity to illness like cancer or mental illness um, or just fucking up your kids with how they're raised. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a very real fear yes. that people, when they are posed with the question of becoming parents, whether kids on its way or do I want kids? I think that's a very real fear. But as you said, this movie really likes to push the guilt feeling. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that comes from Nancy Kelly's performance. She is like punching her womb and grasping at her womb to the point where it kind of feels uncomfortable. Yeah. It comes back to that point of like, how does nobody notice that? Like, like how is it that after she shot, like, yeah, it's like, how is it that her dad could be in that room watching her punch her gut and be like, is something wrong, dear? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, and, and think like, oh, it's just because you just found out you're adopted that uh, your biological mom was a serial killer. Like, no, if I'm like, if I see someone punching their like reproductive organs, <laughs> I'm going to be like, hey, let's talk this out. What are yeah, you feeling? Yeah. What are you thinking? And that, that was also, I mean, I kind of like mentioned this earlier, but like the fact that no one asks Christine what is going on right beyond like you seem upset yeah yeah but just like a hey what are you thinking about yeah i will say that there's a nice touch in the ending Mm -hmm. in the the epilogue at the hospital when everyone's waiting to hear if christine will come out of the coma in that everyone's talking about like why would she do this you know there's she wasn't she was happy we were in love like why would she have done this and there is a nice touch in that her dad is sitting in the back in a chair like smoking a pipe not like very pointedly not saying anything yeah you can see it on his face he i'm you know the idea is that he in that moment is convinced that it's his fault because he told her that her mom was a serial killer right like i think that would be the conclusion he would draw is not like Oh, that it has anything to do with Rhoda. Yeah, it's just like, oh, and it's not like, oh, just that she was adopted. It's that like your mom was a serial killer, right? But yeah, the, the, the hereditary evil thing isn't the thing that works best in this story. The, the heart of the story, the meat of the story, especially with the way that the events are structured, because you could have structured things differently if you really wanted to make the hereditary thing more core. Mm -hmm. The thing that is the core here is what do I do? Like, like I have a murderous child. What do I do? How do you deal with finding out that your kid is a monster? How can you handle that? That's the the fear that is core to the movie. And because of that, they could have just fucking gotten rid of the hereditary evil thing and not have to have inserted this really awkward nature versus nurture thing that doesn't really go anywhere. And that is kind of offensive either way you yeah. go with it. Yeah. Like, okay, Rhoda could have just been a psychopath and it would have been fine. Like it's a lazy bit of writing, but there's a reason why writers tend to make villains psychopaths. And it's because you don't have to explain it then. Like he's just crazy. It's, it's fine. It's the end. Like, I don't have to tell you we didn't need a movie about the origin of the Joker. He's just crazy. The end. (laughs) Um, But if they had gone that route, and even with the route they did go, what would have been nice, uh, but definitely too much to expect from a 1950s movie, would be an acknowledgement that a person can be psychopathic and not 
be a murderer. Yeah. Those two things are not like equivalent. Like, yes, there's definitely some strong like correlation there, but there isn't causation. If you're talking about someone who has been, you know, as they talk about in the movie, like born without remorse, born without a sense of morality, born without pity, blah, 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 blah. That doesn't equal they're just going to start killing things. It's funny that the movie acknowledges that crime can be a product of environment. Like they, they almost acknowledge that as being like the consensus of the day. Mm-hmm. But this movie's biggest blind spot, at least for the characters, I don't know about the writers. Maybe the writers were a little cleverer than I thought, but certainly the biggest blind spot for the fucking characters in this movie is thinking that a bad environment is the only kind that leads to crime. Yeah, and like the movie tries something there to show that that's not necessarily the case, um, but you have to squint to see it because Claude won the penmanship award yes. and he is in an environment that is positioned as opposite to Rhoda's yeah. and therefore not as good as hers. And, you know, when Monica's giving Rhoda a bunch of gifts at the start of the movie, like Christine does say like, Oh, you're spoiling her. And she seems very clearly like uncomfortable with how much Monica spoils her. So I think the movie's aware of what it's doing. The problem is, is that the characters like explicitly explain and state everything in this movie. Cause it's from a play. Yeah. Um, so the fact that they don't actually call out this element means that I think it's easy for that element to go unnoticed. Yeah. Um, so, so the thing is, if we want to talk about why Rhoda is the way she is, and this is coming back to your point about discipline, we should be talking about how immensely spoiled she is and how the way that she's been spoiled has led to an enormous sense of entitlement. Absolutely. Like it's not about, did I earn the penmanship award or not? It's about, I'm the best so give doing it, to it. Me. so give it to me. I should get it. It's mine. It's mine. All, like it wasn't stealing to take it from him because it was mine by rights anyway, is how she thinks. Um, Rhoda knows about consequences. Like she That's she, why she lies. Right. But her moral sense is entirely transactional in nature. Acting one way gets you rewarded, acting another way gets you punished. It's one of the reasons why Patty McCormick's performance as Rhoda is really, really good, um, both as being a spoiled brat of a child and also as being a psychopath, because you can tell from her performance that Rhoda has learned what behaviors to emulate in order to get approval and affection and attention and presence from adults. And you can see this every time that she like launches into one of her like cute little girl routines mid discussion, like where Christine will be like, so how did you murder the boy? And she'll be like, mommy, aren't I just like the cutest little girl? And like, aren't sunshines and gumdrops and lollipops just the sweetest? And you're like, what the fuck planet are you on girl? It's because she sees that things are getting away from her. Things are not going her way. So time to engage in the approval winning behavior, right? It's a simple like if then function going on in her like little robot brain. And she's almost like confused when it doesn't work because she keeps trying it. it over and over. Yeah. Where like things get worse and worse. And Christine's like, so I saw Leroy burn to death Rhoda and Rhoda's just like, Oh mother, aren't you the nicest and sweetest and loveliest mother? And it's like, girl, we are so past that. Yeah. Um, you can really understand because of McCormick's performance, how her mind works. And the thing is her psychopathy is not the psychopathy that's born of poverty and hardship. 
It is the psychopathy that is born of wealth and privilege. And if the movie had the balls to say that, then maybe it really would be as subversive as it like clearly kind of wants to be. Yeah. Um, Cause it thinks it's being subversive just by being like, Hey, you kids commit murder. Right, like here's the perfect little girl. Turns out she's evil. But the thing that really would have been subversive would be to recognize that morality is taught like everything else. And it doesn't just result on its own naturally from a good upbringing. Like you can bring up a kid in as positive an environment as you want. If you don't actually fucking raise them and you just be like, well, I gave them all the nicest things in the world and they went to the best schools and you know, they had everything they ever wanted and they were happy their whole lives. So like they should have turned out good. And it's like, right. But like, did you ever fucking actually raise them? do the work of parenting at all because it's clear that Christine and Kenneth like haven't. And it's because Rhoda has learned how to emulate those behaviors so well that they just didn't think there was like a need to it. Yeah. But like, I think the idea that, you know, I think in the 1950s, the idea that like you can have a good upbringing and still, become evil uh would have been subversive i think here in 2021 the trump presidency has given us all a very good view of what rota types are like as adults yeah yeah um with that kind of wealth and privilege and that feeling of like you know you know that consequences exist so you learned really early on how to wiggle out of them it's not about you know there are people who, to use simplistic terms, go bad because they never face consequences. Um, that happens a lot with like people who abuse power. Mm-hmm. Is like you get into a position of power and you abuse it and then no one questions you on it because you're in a position of power. So you just keep doing it and you get worse and worse. And it's like you look at people who have abused power in that way and you go, well, if someone had stopped them early on, maybe they could have like, learned and grown and become a better person and it wouldn't have escalated so far that's not the issue with like a rota or a trump the issue is not like oh they've never faced consequences like it's enablement it's enablement well and it's also at the core it's a person who doesn't have a concept of morality that is outside of themselves oh think good for me think bad for me right and, and doesn't have a sense of, like, social morality outside of, like, if I act this way, people will like me. And if I act this way, people won't. There's no sense of, like, doing something good on its own. For the sake of right, doing on something its own good. Terms, right. Like, I'm not a good person because it'll get me rewards and keep me out of prison. I'm a good person because I like doing good things for people because it's good. I feel bad good. when bad things happen to other people. Right. And so, like... You know, it's the, it's the, I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people. Exactly. Thing. Um, and it's just, you know, that's what Rhoda doesn't have. I think you've really identified why the bad seed would need an updating mm. if it were to come out today. Mm-hmm. And it also makes me think about future movies of Demon Child, mm-hmm. um, specifically like The Omen with Damien, where kid is evil because he's the devil (laughs) yes and you know it it gives me a little bit of respect for the bad seed in the sense that it's 
No, it's not because she's the devil. Yeah, it's it's more realistic. Yeah. If you're interested in watching this movie and you haven't seen it, listener, like, don't go in expecting something that'll feel like a horror movie. Like, I think it's a horror movie because Christine goes through a very horrific, like, experience and the movie's, like, talking about some real, like, fears that people have and diving into them. But in terms of, like, structure and tone... This is a 1950s melodrama like Marlon Brando would not be out of place, like tearing his shirt open <laughs> in this movie. Um, Christine. Like that's sort of the level of histrionics that we are like operating on. <laughs> and the whole like all set in one house kind of thing where we never really escape the living room that much, like really gives it that like kitchen sink drama feel. The reason why it's so difficult to watch for me the reason why it kind of fucked me up was part of it is because of how it's structured like a play so we never really get away from christine we are like stuck to watching her break down the whole movie and that's so difficult and it comes back to what you were saying about the score in that like the whole pitch of the movie is set so high the whole way through that can become really draining on you by the end of the movie. There isn't variation in like tone or pacing or pitch because we don't escape the living room. The The issue here is that the movie retains a very tell don't show approach to events where characters enter in and describe things uh, or characters go to a window and they watch something happen that we don't see. I will say that did underline the horror of Leroy's death. Yeah, this approach has its pros and cons. Like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope or Dial M for Murder, they retain their stage play quality of being trapped in one place for the whole movie. But those movies work because the exciting events happen in that room Mm -hmm. like we see grace kelly get attacked and kill the guy with the scissors in dallin for murder the problem with this movie is that all of the action happens off stage off camera and is explained to us later like rhoda just leaves to go do stuff and then comes back later and we have to find out who she's killed this time right and we just stick with christine the whole time it does make us feel as trapped as christine so it helps us like empathize with her like feeling of you know entrapment and it also enables us like we learn as she learns about Rhoda's actions so you could consider that like a pro in that like we're always with her point of view so we're always emotionally with her we're solving the puzzle as she's solving the puzzle the problem is by keeping all of Rhoda's murders off screen the movie loses a ton of steam and there isn't a lot to break up just like a series of scenes of Christine having progressively more and more extreme breakdowns in the living room with various scene partners. It would have been interesting to see Rhoda commit some of these murders. Yes. And like the coldness that she could have had. And that would have, I think made this more of a horror movie. Like Mm -hmm. if, cause you need to have a sense of threat in a horror movie. And we never really have a sense of threat because Rhoda never really threatens Christine and we're with Christine's POV almost exclusively. Yeah. So the fear that Christine has is just, what am I going to do about Rhoda? Not necessarily like, like if this movie was remade today, as you were saying, the third act wouldn't be, I'm going to quietly drug my kid to death while I read her a bedtime story. The third act definitely would have been like, Christine's stuck in the house with Rhoda and Rhoda's going to kill her. And they're like running around. Rhoda found out that the vitamins... 
were sleeping pills. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was like an interesting moment when she asked to see the bottle. Because I was like, does she suspect her mom of something? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh shit, like she doesn't care about her mom at all, does Mm she? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was like a very interesting moment. Because I figured that like, oh, she... She would care about her mom to the extent of, like, you provide for me, mm-hmm. uh, you, like, feed me, clothe me, read me stories, whatever. But once Christine knows of what Rhoda has done, Rhoda is already, like, I don't need Christine around anymore. She's possibly a threat to me being a person yeah it's it's worth noting that it's obvious when rhoda is putting on the like innocent little girl routine that that's like a big lie where she's trying to just disarm christine but it's worth noting that the times where rhoda breaks down crying and as if she's like afraid of what's going to happen to her and like you know all that kind of thing and like is hugging christine and displaying like some actual like emotion of like recognition of the like gravity of her situation that that's all an act two yeah that's just i've learned what i need right now from you isn't approval i need sympathy because if you sympathize with me you'll keep me alive and so i'm going to cry to evoke sympathy like you have to realize that everything that rhoda does is bullshit yeah um leroy's death being off screen is effective because of the sound design of his screaming mixed with rhoda's accelerating piano play we get to imagine something much, much grislier than we could have seen on screen in 1956. And that increases the horror, but like we could have seen Rhoda locking him into the shed, right? We could have seen Rhoda like going down there and being like confronting him and being really creepy and cold and like fucking throwing the matches down there and then running up and like locking him in. It could have even been almost like not quite a montage, but cutting between Christine talking with Monica about like, Monica offering sleeping pills because you look tired, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we see a close-up shot of a match being struck. We see a close-up of some smoke billing coming out of a window. We see a close-up of Rhoda locking the shed doors. Yeah, like Alfred Hitchcock said that one of the prime tenets of suspense is, meanwhile, back at the ranch, right? Like, you have to do intercutting to build up suspense. And this movie doesn't have, like, fucking any of that, right? Until the the new and, ending which is which obvious even also isn't done to the best of its ability right so the thing is is like we should have seen more of her murders on screen and we could have even seen her kill claude daigle like yeah that kind of like takes the wind out of like christine slowly figuring it out at the start of the movie or whatever but as i mentioned earlier the audience already knows rhoda's the killer that's why they bought a ticket it also would have made this movie much shorter this is like mm. just over two hours and it can kind of feel like it. Like we don't get to Christine suspecting Rhoda of Cloud's death until like an hour in. Yeah, because we've been slowly piecing it together, right? And it's just like, okay, can we like shave off even just like 20 minutes? Well, and the other thing too is even if you had kept everything and you had just added a bunch of scenes of Rhoda murdering people, and it, the movie turned out to be like two, two and a half hours, which just like never would have happened in 1956. But like, let's say that's what you ended up with. I think the movie would still 
feel shorter because there would have been a variety of pacing. And we would have been able to cut some of the scenes where people are talking about what happened off screen. Right, yeah, you don't have to have, you know, Rhoda come in and be like, so then I did this, that, and the other thing while I was gone because we fucking saw it. Yeah, so as it stands, I feel like the movie that we get is much more interested in being a melodrama than being a horror movie, partially because I think there was a fear that if they exploited the horror aspects to their fullest extent, they would not have gotten code approval. But it's one of those things where you're just looking at the studio and being like, then why did you do this story? And you see this happen so often in the code era where like a book comes out and it's like a controversial bestseller because it's about like, you know, I don't know, like a white man and a black woman falling in love or something like that. And so then it's like, oh, it's a bestseller. Okay, well, I guess we'll make it into a movie. And then it's like, right, but the code doesn't allow for miscegenation. And so then you're like, okay, well, what if the story is that he's white and she's white, but she's like poor? And you're like, yeah, but that's that's, that's not, not the, the same movie. thing. That's not the story. And so then you've like gutted the story of what made it interesting to begin with. And so you just, you find yourself questioning, like, why did you go to the trouble? And especially in 1956, it's frustrating because, like, filmmakers... We're just on the cusp. Yeah. Filmmakers like Otto Preminger and Billy Wilder are saying, fuck you to the code. I mean, it's going to be another, like, 10 years before the code actually goes away. But, like... It's it's about to lose its teeth. Yes. It's getting a revision in December 1956 that we're going to talk about when we get there. That, like, they could have fucking just waited a bit for this movie and had much more of an effective product. Yeah. Well, let's compare the product to some other product. (laughs) (laughs) As we compare products, I think it's just worth mentioning a few of the other films we've had that have had children as the central character. Mm. Um, Now this movie is explicitly for adults, as we have said, but uh, I think it's worth calling out Curse of the Cat People, a horror movie for children, which came out in 1944 and it's currently ranked at number 103. I feel like there's a general sense that people have that movies with kids are bad. That is not the case with Curse of the Cat People. Right. Uh, a movie that is bad, but ranked higher for a horror movie is Invaders from Mars. Oh, yeah. yeah. From 1953, ranked at number 92. It's not necessarily bad it's just cheap and yes. bad yeah it's just cheap cheap is the main word i would use <laughs> to describe that movie and then uh the next movie i want to call out which i think is strangely interestingly comparable is the night of the hunter yeah. from 1955 ranked at number 30 yeah I mean, Evelyn Warden is basically playing the same character in both movies, which is the person who just thinks that the serial killer is the greatest person on the planet. Yep. So where were you looking to rank? So I had a really hard time with this because of the fact that I didn't really feel this was much of a horror movie, Mm -hmm. that like on a horror scale, this movie ain't much, but like... And also that I didn't think it was a good movie because I think for all the reasons we went through, like it, it should have been more of a movie and less of a filmed stage play. And it has all these problems. But then on the other hand, like I walked away from the movie really disturbed and upset and like affected by it. And that's what it's trying to do. So it clearly worked. 
And so like, and there's all these interesting things you can dive into talking about this movie. Like we just fucking spent an hour and a half doing, and we don't usually get that with a lot of these movies. It's usually like, well, John Carradine sure didn't put any effort into that performance. Moving on. Listen, my boy Carradine puts effort into what he's doing. (laughs) So (laughs) it was really tough for me to rank. Um, And I really didn't know on what scale I should be ranking. So I just sort of looked for Night of the Hunter (laughs) and then just kind of like used my gut from there because I did feel like you did this connection because I mean, Night of the Hunter's got the kids. Mm-hmm. Just Night of the Hunter, they're fucking the most innocent, darling little children who ever lived, you know. And it's got <laughs> Evelyn Warden, and it's got this kind of like artificial feel. Like Night of the Hunter doesn't feel like a play, but it does feel fake in the same way that like this movie does. Yeah. Um, so Night of the Hunter is at number thirty. So I kind of tried to like use my gut in each direction. So I kind of positioned Night of the Hunter as like almost like a midpoint. Um, so the furthest up I got was another movie that this movie felt a lot like because of the way that they're mixing melodrama and horror, right? Because of the way where it's like, well, is this a horror movie or is this a movie about a fractured home? And also the way that they mix melodrama and horror with like murder mystery stuff where like, even though we know who's killed everyone, it's like super important, like about like how the murder was done and where all the clues are and what did we do with the evidence? And that's La Diabolique at number 16 Mm -hmm. just felt very of a piece. And I think if we are ranking things as horror movies, the diabolique is better than the bad seed because diabolique has that fucking ending. That's so good. Yeah. You see her have a heart attack on screen. Well, in the context of the movie, she doesn't actually. And like the dude with like the creepy eyes. And like, and like even just when she's going through the building and like she thinks someone's maybe watching her and like, you don't know what's going on and there's tension and there's suspense, two things that never fucking happen in this movie. (laughs) Um, So the diabolique is, is definitely better looking down from night of the hunter. uh, I made it all the way down to queen of spades at number 40, uh, which like this movie also has this feeling of like, we're a horror movie, but like, we're a real movie, you know? <laughs> so like, we're not, we're not like horror, horror. Cause that's for like cheap drive throughs Like we're, we want an Oscar here. And then right below queen of spades is the werewolf. So it feels like 40 to 41 is almost like the dividing line between like real movies from real studios <laughs> and like schlock. Right. And so I feel like that's the lowest I would go for the bad seed because the bad seed is if nothing else a real movie interesting so i was drawn to curse of the cat people at 103 fair and while as we say every time that movie is (laughs) horror for children it is very effective yeah and i think it's horror is a bit more effective viscerally than the horror in the bad seed which as we've kind of explained and discussed muddles the waters with guilt and horror. Yeah. So I felt like curse of the cat people was better mm. looking below. We have Yatsua Kaiden from 1956 at one Oh four. Right. The lady and the monster at one Oh five. And then like, you know, we devolve into voodoo <laughs> man, you know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like, we start uh... to get into some real bullshit. Yeah. 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 And Yatsua Kaiden and this is the 1956 version of Yatsia Kaiden. Yeah, to be very clear, like that movie was fine. <laughs> was fine. 
but it's it's set up of the domestic situations mm. were relatively simplistic compared to the <laughs> convoluted but also complex emotions going on in the bad seed. So I kind of had a spot which was the new 104 below the curse of the cat mm. people and above Yatsuwa Kaiden. Okay. If we if we look so that's a wide swath. That's like 60 movies. Yeah, um, between us. If we look sort of in the midpoint, just the exact like midpoint just to give us a a ballpark. Uh we're looking approximately around number 80 or so. Um, between that is um, my floor and your ceiling. Yeah. Uh, so that's this area with like dead men walk and the Raven and the man with nine lives. To be honest, like my gut feeling is that like this movie has to be better than dead men walk <laughs> uh, or the ghoul. <laughs> now, now an interesting one to point out in this range though, is the beast with five fingers at mm-hmm. number 78, um, which is, the bad seed at least like isn't secretly like a dream or something or like we find out that Rhoda was actually like an adult the whole time or something that totally like upends the premise of the film. But like Beast with Five Fingers, they both have like jokey like apologize for the movie endings that kind of like ruin them. Uh, so I feel like that's sort of an interesting point of comparison above the beast with five fingers is strangler of the swamp which is what if exactly fairman maria but without everything interesting from fairman maria yeah okay okay looking at this area and looking up you know what's above here Mm. frankenstein meets the wolf man oh yeah up at 65 yep they've got the houses this is a really hard movie to rank yeah for, um, for reasons of its genre difficulties and it's confusing it's good but it's not good <laughs> qualities yeah which i feel like we're gonna have to confront more and more as time goes on and we run into movies that are very viscerally upsetting but not good that's gonna start happening more more and more i mean we can already see that it has happened with things like murders in the zoo being so high yeah and and so like the thing is is that some of our like what's what'll make it easier is that like the context of the other movies around them will change right you're not going to be judging like we'll be watching friday the 13th movies in the context of an era when like that's just what horror is it's tough right now because we're on like a cusp of what horror is changing and so it's like how do you compare the bad seed to like it came from outer space right um it gets very difficult i do feel like we've kind of been in this area a lot lately Mm -hmm. for ranking um what were you did you want to put this like above the houses is that what you were kind of ambling towards i feel like i would put this no higher than the black room yeah and looking below that i feel like it probably should not go below it came from outer space yeah i agree that Probably this shouldn't go above the black room. Uh, above there, we have stuff like the 26th student of Prague. We have freaks. You know, we've got stronger stuff. Below the black room is Cult of the Cobra. Jijin Yuki Otoko. I, I It's tough for me because I feel like the bad seed on like a craft level is a lot better than what's in this area. 
but you know, then it's like, but what about on a horror level or what about like as a movie or what about, you know, it's, 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 it's tough to rank as you've said. Thinking of the performances. Mm, sure. I think Nancy Kelly does worlds above mm-hmm. the acting in cult of the Cobra yeah. and things below this. Cult of the Cobra is a very interesting movie, but it is interesting almost entirely by accident. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to describe it. So I think below the black moon, but above Cult of the Cobra. Okay. I think that's a nice compromise spot. Um, you know, it's not up in the rarefied atmosphere I was looking at, um, but it's like higher than what the halfway point was between our ranges. I'm happy with that. Awesome. Okay, so entering the list at the new number 58 is The Bad Seed from 1956, directed by Mervyn Leroy. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking on the list, you can reach us through our Ask Box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and on whatever podcasting app you like to listen to if you subscribe to our RSS feed. If you want to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on your podcasting app of choice. Uh, Those help algorithms to show the show to other people. If you want to help spread the word of the show without the use of algorithms, you can do it yourself by just telling a friend about it on social media or in a socially distanced yelling match, uh, however you talk to people these days. If you feel like helping us out financially uh, and you have the means to do so, we would love it if you would head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. If you like the show and you appreciate what we do and you want it to just keep on happening forever, one really nice way you can show that is by becoming a patron of the night. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month and you'll get a nice little thank you on the show at the five and ten dollar levels you get access to bonus content five dollars gets you weekly bonus audio usually cut content from past episodes i think we had like a 15 minute one go up recently from the thing from another world episode so that's a lot of fun the ten dollar level gets you access to a lot of special projects that we've done movie reviews short fiction we've done audiobooks we've done uh music albums we've done all kinds of crazy stuff over on the patreon so if you want to show how much you enjoy the program and you also maybe want some extra goodies, head over to patreon.com slash scream scene pod. Well, Ben, this has been quite an episode. This bad seed is more like a bad bush. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are heading back to the UK and revisiting Hammer Studios uh, for their x-rated follow-up to the quatermass experiment it's x the unknown (laughs) amazing and the patreon audio that just went up this week was from the man from planet x that's right so uh lots of synergy going on it's extraordinary excellent see you next week creatures of the night bye bye (laughs) 